listeners, and welcome to The Gallery Gap, a podcast that examines inequity and equity in museums, exhibitions, collections, and programming. I'm Claire. And I'm Melissa. Last month, Claire had the chance to head to Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, to attend the Biennial Midwest Women's Artists Symposium. The symposium, organized by the Illinois Women Artists Project, is in its fourth iteration, and this year it is part of the programming for Art Design Chicago. Officially starting in 2018, Art Design Chicago is a year-long celebration of Chicago's art and design legacy. Listeners in the region should check it out. A link will be in our show notes. Claire, can you tell us a little bit about the symposium? Sure thing. The title, while a long one, gives a sense of what was covered. It's called Transforming Midwest Culture and Society, Women Artists, 1960s to 1980s, Discovering Their Work, Telling Their Stories, Learning from the Past. And I'm just going to quote the organizers here as their words sum up well the need for this symposium and what was at the heart of it. Quote, Midwestern artists were aware of artistic currents in New York City and the West Coast, but often took a different path. They have been largely left out of the scholarship on American art, and this symposium drew attention to these women to fill in the gaps in that scholarship. The 1960s and 70s were a period of great cultural, political, economic, and technological change in the United States, and many artists used their creative skills and activities to help shape society. Civil rights, women's rights, environmental concerns, and the war in Vietnam were the central issues of the day. The presentations and discussions focused on the impact of Midwestern women artists on their communities through organizations they formed to exhibit and promote their creative activities, the social issues they addressed in their work, and how it transformed their communities, and the media in which they chose to work, as well as their subject matter. It considered how art critics responded to their art, as well as how they saw themselves fitting into the professional world of artists. It was a lot, but we really dug deeply into all of it. So what intrigued you most about this year's symposium? While there was some important work shared by art historians about their research, what was most interesting for me were the panels of women artists from around the Midwest. They were active in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and reflected on how their work took shape and bonds formed during the period in question. Collaboration, community building, and collective action were frequent topics, and a rejection of the conception of the isolated creative genius that is often associated with stereotypes of the often masculine brooding artist. So can you share an example of collaboration that was highlighted at the symposium? There were many, so three examples really stand out. The first is the longtime collaboration between the photographers Barbara Shuray and Lindsay Lachman, who have been collaborating together since they were students at the Illinois Institute of Technology's Institute of Design in the 1980s. Their work finds its place in the confluence of history, myth, and popular culture as they shape our understanding of who we are. And those are their words, not mine. I'm really interested in the fact that their collaboration is sustained over decades and even across distance. I agree. Do we know Shuray and Lachman's thoughts on the practice? Well, reflecting on this, they wrote, and this is me quoting them again, We are asking the same questions about finding our place in the world and using photography to examine these questions. On a practical level, working with a collaborator provides critique, a willing model, a road trip companion, an assistant, an editor. On a conceptual level, it challenges the notion of the primacy of the individual artist's vision, the artist-model relationship, and ownership of the final work. Collaboration demands moving beyond personal stories and into the realm of collective experience. It has been the core of our practice and mirrors the fluid and mutable ways of storytelling traditions. Depending on the project, we shoot together or separately, and when necessary, model. Each body of work evolves through research and debate, editing, and compromise. To bridge the distance between the two cities, we rely on virtual communication and our online notebooks as well as studio practice. 
Their statement about how collaboration moves from focusing on the personal realm to a collective realm of creation and expression is so thoughtful. Um, did they speak on a panel together about their work? And building on that, were there specific works that jumped out at you from their oeuvre? Actually, they spoke about their collaboration on separate panels. Barbara spoke during the New Ideas and Media panel, while Lindsay situated their work within a framework of social and cultural impact of women artists the next day. I appreciated this way of allowing a singular voice to represent different perspectives of the same collaboration. In terms of their work, it's very strong throughout their entire practice, but I was especially struck by their meticulously composed scenes from their mythology series. In it, the artists use themselves as models, inserting their bodies into scenes that utilize humor to disrupt and interrogate gender roles, domesticity, and history, including art history. We've put an example from the series on the website for you to check out, and listeners, see if you can identify its art historical predecessor. We'll also post a link to their website in the show notes. Claire, you were reflecting on the symposium through the theme of collaboration, so can you tell us a bit about the work of Cedar Rapids-based artist Jane Gilmore and her work which lies at the intersection of collaboration, public art, and social issues? Absolutely. For Gilmore, the late 1980s marked the beginning of a multi-year collaborative project with disenfranchised homeless populations, both in the United States and the United Kingdom. In workshops, participants created repoussé works that responded to Gilmore's prompt to remember a favorite place or space and either to write about it or make a drawing. Two copies were made, one for the installation and the other for participants to keep for themselves. The resulting installations combined shiny metallic repoussé drawings, found objects, notes, and videos. The drawings were installed, covering floors and ceilings, in storefronts, in community centers, in alternative art spaces, hospitals, and in museums. I love this project and her work in general. We have one of her pieces in our collection, Jack Swede's Tomb, that we acquired in 1991. And that was actually the same year that we partnered with Quad City Arts to bring messages from the homeless to Davenport for a public installation downtown. Our file is slim, so I'm curious, what are Gilmore's thoughts on the collaboration? So this is, this is coming from uh, some reflections that she wrote about it. She wrote... While the workshops and installations were intended to give public voice to the disenfranchised, both within their communities and beyond, they also encouraged the use of the imagination as a survival tool. In this collaboration, Gilmore worked with and not on behalf of her collaborators, which I think is an important distinction, and all participants in these projects were credited in Gilmore's installations, and all the profits from the exhibitions were returned to continue the project for others. Gilmore is using her role as an artist to make space for other voices, and that strikes me as some essential work. I agree. So listeners, again, we'll share a few images of the installation in Davenport and a link to Gilmore's website so you can see more of her work in the show notes. And in the show notes, you can also check out another of my favorite projects of hers, which is the 1976 All-American Glamour Kitty pageant, as well as how she's carried on this concept of community-created Grey Pousset into other important topics. American Glamour Kitty pageant. Woo. Stay tuned. <laughs> so you mentioned having three examples of collaboration that really come to mind as you reflect on the symposium. Yes. Yeah, so finally, I want to acknowledge the important role that cooperative alternative art spaces played in the lives of Midwestern women artists. Three of these spaces came up again and again during the symposium as artists reflected on the roles they played in their lives and their careers. The first art gallery, founded in 1973, still exists today, and it exists with a mission to bring, quote, innovative, emerging, and or experimental visual art to a wide range of viewers and to provide a nurturing atmosphere for the continued development of artistic potential and dialogue. 
ARC works to empower women by providing professional and mentoring opportunities in the visual arts. ARC serves to raise public awareness of community-based issues by presenting exhibits, workshops, discussion groups, and programs by and for underserved populations. The second one is one that I was familiar with, the Artemisia Gallery in Chicago. This opened in September of 1973, directly across from the Museum of Contemporary Art. It was one of the first women artists cooperatives in the Midwest. It's a pretty big deal. The 20 founding members were recent graduates of places like the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and other institutions in the city. They, they found themselves with few women mentors and exhibition opportunities and decided that they needed to create their own. In addition to promoting their own work, they curated solo and group exhibitions from around the country and were an important site for discussion of feminist issues, art, and theory for 30 years until they closed their doors in 2003. And last but certainly not least was the collective Afrocobra, first the Coalition of Black Revolutionary Artists and later the African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists, which was originally founded in 1968 and is one of the nation's longest-running artist collectives. The group defines its mission as an approach to image-making which would reflect and project the moods, attitudes, and sensibilities of African Americans independent of the technical and aesthetic structures of Eurocentric modalities. They aim to share with the African-American community the truth and beauty of black self-identity, and one of the founding members, Barbara Jones Hogu, reflected, quote, We wanted to speak to them and for them by having our common thoughts, feelings, trials, and tribulations express our total existence as a people. We are aware of the negative experiences in our present and past, but we wanted to accentuate the positive mode of thought and action. Therefore, our visual statements were to be black, positive, and direct with identification, purpose, and direction. Claire, thank you for sharing your thoughts on the symposium and the importance of these collaborations and collectives. It was my pleasure. And as I said earlier, the focus on these collaborations and collectives were foundational to the Midwestern women's artists' experiences, especially those living in Chicago. I really appreciated the symposium because in the same spirit, it brought us all together as comrades to celebrate these women, their work, and their accomplishments. So a hearty bravo to all of the participants, to Kristen McKenzie and Dr. Sarah Glover for their work in organizing the successful symposium, and to Chani Lyons, the founder of the Illinois Women Artist Project, who passed away in February of 2017, but who laid the groundwork for the symposium and whose vision sustained the Illinois Women Artist Project since its founding in 2006. So you've referenced the Illinois Women Artists Project, or IWAP, a few times now. Can you say a bit more about what that is? I'm glad you asked. The Illinois Women Artists Project's mission is to gather information about artists who worked throughout Illinois between 1818 and 1980 and to promote the appreciation of their work and experiences. I'm an advisor for the project, and we are interested in women artists' work as well as how they manage their creative lives alongside the various roles women played throughout the period and the larger role they played in the shaping of the history of Illinois in the Midwest. It's a community source project, so if you have information about artists and like to share it on the database, which is hosted by Bradley University, we'll post a link in the show notes. It's also a great repository of information and a valuable first step in learning about women artists of our region. And I won't get into too many details here, but we're currently reworking the database to make it even more accessible and usable, so stay tuned. It's exciting. I was introduced to IWAP through a recent project at the Figgy, the exhibition Irma Renee Cohen, An Artist Rediscovered, which is on display through 2017. 
The exhibition's guest curator, Dr. Cynthia Wiedemann Empen, was first drawn to the idea through her participation in the very first Midwest Women Artists Symposium, which was held in 2011. It was in researching for the symposium that Cynthia came across to the artist Irma Renee Cohen, a Rock Island native. We had an opportunity to speak with Cynthia about the exhibition and are eager to share her research over the past half decade. You came across the artist Irma Renee Cohen in 2011 as you were researching for a presentation at the Illinois Women Artist Project Symposium that focused on the theme of Uncovering the Stories of Midwestern Women Artists, 1840 to 1940. Tell us about that, your process of discovery, maybe what stood out for you about the artist. First, actually, it was an email from my neighbor. She sent me an email just announcing the symposium. I was in between projects at the time, and so I just literally Googled Rock Island and woman artists to see if there were any other women artists I knew that were well-known at the time. I knew a couple artists um, had been in the Quad Cities early on, but I wanted to fit the, the time frame that they were giving for the symposium. Um, the first thing that popped up was the Illinois Women Artists Project um, database, and one of the names that popped up was Irma Cohn, and it listed her as being born in Rock Island, and realized never heard of her. They had just a short, very limited bi- 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 uh, bibliography and biography listing some of the exhibitions she had um, been shown in and a little bit about her career, but nothing extensive. So then I started you know, trying to find anything online with her name and didn't really come across much, maybe less than a handful of artworks that had been at, for sale at galleries or auctions. And um, I just kept at it because by then I was kind of intrigued. I had never heard of her. And it seemed like she had, from what was on the IWAP site, that she had exhibited across the country and in the Midwest. So about a week or two later, I found a listing um, with a Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts exhibition. She had been in around 1918. That listed her address at the time. And I looked out my window from my computer, and I could see her house from my house. So then I was doubly intrigued because then I knew she, in addition to growing up in Rock Island, she lived in my neighborhood. So she studied art at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, which was unusual but not unheard of for a woman in the early 1900s. Can you tell us a little bit about her path to the SAIC and how you see the time that she was in Chicago? And you're welcome to fold in some of the residencies she did in other locations, how how that has really informed her work. So she enrolled in morning art classes here in Rock Island with Olaf Grostrom. That only lasted three days because they apparently got into a discussion over proportion. (laughs) I love this. And somehow she was proven right. And that was... I found that in a Mexican interview, newspaper interview she did later in her life. Um, It was family lore, too, apparently. So he apparently told her parents that they have a talented daughter and advised immediately to enroll her that September um, at the Art Institute in Chicago. So she was there for four years. She stayed on for postgraduate work. She also taught Saturday classes there. Um, One of her professors was Charles Francis Brown. Um, I think he was probably most influential on her because she also would go in the summers with his sketching classes to Grand Detour, Illinois. Um, He later founded the Eagle's Nest Art Colony, which is also associated with Laredo Taft and other writers, poets, artists. She, for sure, I know, I've been able to track down, took those classes with Charles Brown in 1907 in the summer of 1908. Um, And she received a very traditional academic um, art education at the Art Institute. 
So while Cohn was born in Rock Island in 1883 and had family in the area, she traveled extensively and even spent her final 30 years living in Mexico. But for years, she either lived in or returned to Rock Island. Could you tell us a little bit more about those that time, that those Rock Island years, and the contributions that she made to the art scene that's now known as the Quad Cities? Sure. Um, they had this shop in 1909, 1910, 1911. Her sister got married. And so I think that might have ended that. I'm not sure how long she had her studio at that location. It was two doors down from her father's department store that he co-owned. Um, unfortunately, that building's been destroyed. It's now Arts Alley, next to Quad City Arts. Still has an art purpose, but <laughs> the building was uh, apparently taken down in the 1990s. Then in the 19-teens, um, she became involved with artists in the community, and they loosely had exhibits at the libraries and at locations in Davenport. They formally organized themselves, I think, as a Tri-City Art League in 1915. Um, so she would have exhibits, some solo shows and group shows. They would bring in other artists, too, to have traveling shows. And those would be either at the Tri-City Art League studios in downtown Davenport or at the three major libraries. At the time, it was known as the Tri-City, so Davenport, Moline, and Rock Island. Then when the Tri-City Art League disbanded and that sort of funneled into the Davenport Municipal Art Gallery in 1925. Which is the figgy today. Which is the figgy, <laughs> the forerunner of the figgy. Um, Tri-City Art League activities had kind of slowed during World War One, and um, they had, all, had also offered a school art classes. Irma taught a few times, I think, in the 19-teens. Once the Davenport Municipal Art Gallery um, opened, her and her parents became a patrons, and Irma was listed as a patroness of the annual exhibit that the Davenport Gallery would have each year. She the, she herself then exhibited it in those exhibits and won prizes. Um, then she became one of the directors uh, of the Friends of Art, which was a supporting organization to the Figgy, oops, to the Davenport Gallery. So speaking of art, <laughs> one of the things we like to do at the Gallery Gap is um, is – provide for our listeners who can't usually, many of whom are here, but many of whom aren't, who can't usually come to the exhibitions, a description of a work or um, really your own observations of, of something specific about that work. So is there one that stands out to you from the exhibition that you'd love to talk about just in terms maybe of, of the first time you saw it or the role that it plays within the exhibition as a larger narrative? That one's a hard one to answer because yeah. her Personal style changed over the years. She would incorporate some of the popular um, artistic trends, either from tonalism, then impressionism, and then she kind of just developed her own um, realistic landscape style with her own personal expression. Um, if I could talk about one, probably I would just go ahead and say the one that's at the Rock Island Public Library. It's a really large work. It's of Gloucester, Massachusetts, which was one of the largest, if not the largest, art colony in the United States at the time. And when she was there, when she first started visiting there in the late 19-teens to about 1935 was the last visit I can trace, um, she just must have ran across so many artists of different styles. Even the more avant-garde artists were painting there at the time. And that painting incorporates some of her early impressionist focus on light and color, but the paint is not as thickly applied to that one. It's more broad strokes. And critics at the time, starting as far back as 1920, realized that she had switched her styles from the more traditional American impressionist style and that she was painting in a more, they called it a more realistic style. Um, but she was flattening her brush strokes 
And her paintings, pretty much in the teens, 20s, and 30s, were always known for her skies, her treatment of water, her treatment of clouds. They were always praised for their atmosphere. Sometimes they were praised in terms of music terms and, you know, that her paint was applied and her colors were akin to organ music, which I do like that reference because she started out as a musician. Um, So, yeah, that painting, mostly because I think it was one of the quintessential subject matters when she would paint out east, it being a harbor scene, focusing on sailboats. Um, She tended not to like sunny skies, sunny weather. She liked painting initially moonlight, twilight, um, sunrise. I've run across lots of reference to her yellow sky, so I think she liked to paint late afternoon, early evening, right before dusk. We'd like to thank Cynthia for her work on this project, as well as for taking time to speak with us about her research. We've included a visual for the artwork Cynthia mentioned, Gloucester and Autumn, which belongs to the Rock Island Library on the website. We've also added a link to Cynthia's blog for listeners who'd like to learn more about Irma Renee Cohen, as well as other local women artists Cynthia is beginning to research. And after speaking with Cynthia, Claire and I had a chance to talk with Vanessa Sage, who's the assistant curator at the Figgy and manager of this exhibition project. During her interview, Vanessa shared how the exhibition came together and why it matters that we create and show exhibitions such as this for our community. Cynthia and I were kind of paired up on this exhibition, and I hadn't really heard of Cohen prior to the discussion, so it was really exciting to get to know about her through Cynthia, who's done extensive research, and then get started on uh, trying to formulate a plan to get all the objects together and start putting an exhibition together. I mean, it seems like we have two things going on here. You have more lenders, and yet you're only working with one artist. Yes. So how has that been, digging in and really focusing in on one artist during her entire life as opposed to many artists around a theme? Well, there's a lot more time to cover, and another thing is that in the in the past, I was dealing with kind of a known quantity from the very start, whereas this, the checklist was in a constant state of development because we didn't know exactly what we were going to have access to. So it was like building that up. And it was several months before we were at a level of lender contacts with available works that I was really comfortable with the number because at the beginning, everything was very... Uh, tenuous and kind of unknown who would be willing to lend it and what we were going to be able to get. And uh, that's different than having these everything spread out and available to you. Another thing is her work is in a lot of private hands. And so it's different than an artist who's more represented in institutions where you're like, well, I know you have this and this and this and this. I think that it's the we were we were talking a little bit with Cynthia about the process of trying to connect those dots from an art historical perspective. I think that what you're speaking about is the curatorial practice side of that where this is a an artist that we are trying to put back on the map and so because her name has not while while her the awareness of her as an artist has waxed and waned and has depended upon the location um as you're trying to pull together an exhibition, you're trying to pull together all of these these different strands, and it's a it's a logistical, it's a different type of logistical framework than, and part of that is driven by the fact that the point of this exhibition is to try to raise the profile of her and bring bring her work back into the public's attention. Mm-hmm. So. 
Could you reflect a little bit on why you think it's important that we we exhibit Cohn's work, um, and how does this fit into the large your larger curatorial vision for the Figgy? Well, I think it's important for a number of reasons. Uh, the connection to the community is very vital. People are automatically invested in coming to see her work because she was from Rock Island. But more than that, it extends outward to different things in the art world that happened, as well as different things happening in the world. The fact that she was a professional artist and a woman at the time that she was is interesting to think about. And just her her biography and the way she lived her life is also inspiring because she was her own person. She was independent. She had a passion for art. She followed it. And so I think there's a lot of different levels to it. And you can read into her biography as something very personal and personally inspiring, but then thinking about her and broader art historical context is also interesting. Well, we just, the Figgy just purchased a Louise Nevelson. Um, and I think it was earlier in this year when we started the podcast, a Helen Lundberg how how is all of this i mean it seems like there's an attention on on collecting women artists works that hasn't i mean it's not that we haven't been doing it before but collecting and exhibiting in a um how do i say this claire with an intentionality what, yeah is that, with, is that, with okay. greater intentionality okay. i was you. letting you i was i was letting you just go. i wasn't getting there though I'd... um <laughs> So can you reflect on that? I mean, the conversations that you have with your with your curatorial team, you know, is this something that, that is intentional? It is. Yeah, it is. Andrew Wallace and Joshua Johnson and I, we've discussed it before. It's wonderful to expose people to artists that haven't been given um, – that exposure before <laughs> like like a platform yeah. like voice. a platform yeah. for them yeah. and then at the same time there are so many artists who are male artists who are like out of reach in a lot of ways and you're speaking financially in some cases yeah, yeah. financially and then so there's these there's a lot of women who are working at the same time and they're just as important in that period of time and then to be able to highlight them, it's, I think it's, it's more doable than, so it's, I think it's, um, doable and important. It's doable and important. So it seems like the community is really important to the projects that you've been working on. First with Picturing the Prairie and the six regional artists who are involved in that. Then with Jean Shin, while, while Jean is not a local artist, you, you, um, had help from over 800 people on that exhibition. So I guess I, what I'm getting to is why the community focus? Why is that important to you in your curatorial vision? And what do you enjoy most about projects like these, such as focusing on, now on a community-based artist, a native to Rock Island in a Renee Cohen's exhibition? Uh, I think it's important for the community to feel like they're a part of the organization, a part of the Figgy and by highlighting regional and local artists, they realize what's happening in their own community. And then there's an element of pride and just natural investment in what's happening there. And I think if, you, if you're tying yourself closer to the community, it's just uh, it's a healthy 
it's a healthy and vital thing to do. And then another thing with Cohen is that she was involved in the artistic community mm -hmm. so heavily. And I think people sometimes forget that there was such a, a healthy and vital artistic community here for so many years yeah. prior. And it's easy in art history for things to be overshadowed by places like New York in Chicago when you're thinking about, like, the teens and the mm -hmm. 20s. And knowing that she was exhibiting in those places, but she was hyper-involved here, mm -hmm. and there was such a, a drive for cultural enrichment here in in that time period. Right, so connecting the contemporary moment to our historical moment. Because there's and a the legacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this has been a great exploration of art, collaboration, community, and really everything in between. Thank you, Claire, and also Cynthia and Vanessa for contributing to this important conversation. Listeners, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or you can listen to the episodes on WVIK's website. There's an email on the website in case you'd like to contact us. Also, don't forget that we include additional information and materials on our Facebook page that relate to the episodes. So if you're interested in digging deeper, be sure to follow us there. always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WVIK for your continued support of this project. Remember that this project only exists because of listener support. Be sure to go to wvik.org and click the donate button. A very, very special thanks to our producer, Lacey Scarmana, and her behind-the-scenes brilliance. And this podcast would still be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Pedersen Pate's design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. Last but not least, thank you to all of our listeners. Until next time.